along this road that we call life and just getting to share experiences with you all. Um, we've been throughout summer doing a series called More Than Tall Tales. Um, and in case you need a refresher on what a tall tale is, raise your hand if you know what a tall tale is. Can anybody think of any examples of a tall tale? A tall tale is a story that has unbelievable events that are told as factual. So, can anybody think of one? Avengers. <laughs> <laughs> Avengers, I suppose that counts. The one I always think of is Paul Bunyan, and didn't he like stomp out the Great Lakes supposedly, and then he dragged his axe behind him, and that's how the Grand Canyon was created? Yeah. Is that something like that? That's, that's the only one that I can actually remember, John, but I know that there's a lot. John Brown, John Brown? John Brown. What's the guy's name that? What's the guy's name that can lay the railroad? Oh, no, yeah, the railroad track. Is that not John Brown? I think that is. Uh, John Brown. That's one. Someone Google it. John Henry. John Henry. Henry. My God, John Henry was a mighty man. There you go, John Henry. The other one I, I was looking him up, Pecos or Picos Bill, who rode on a tornado, supposedly. Anyway, so there's these stories that we learn in our childhood that have these unbelievable elements to them, but they get told as if they're fact. And so I, if we're not careful, it's really easy for us to ascribe some of those same tall tale characteristics to the scripture. Um, Noah built a ginormous boat, and two of every animal in the whole world fit on this boat. That can kind of sound like a tall tale, right? Or am I crazy? Okay. Um, a little bit of both. Moses parted the Red Sea by putting his staff in the ground. Does that sound a little bit tall tale-ish to anybody? I mean, Jonah spent three days in the belly of a whale. There's a lot of things that we read in the scripture that sound a lot like tall tales. And so if we're not careful, we end up reading scripture looking for fact and maybe discarding some of these stories because they don't sound very plausible to us, to our ears. And I think it would be easy for us to get stuck in that cycle. But we believe that the Bible is more than a tall tale. It's a tool that God has given us to show us about God's love for God's people and to help us to understand this relationship that God has had throughout the story of humanity from the beginning of time until now. God has been constantly pursuing his people. So today on our journey to understanding the Bible as more than tall tales, we're going to look at the story of Gideon, and it's found in the book of Judges, in chapter 6 is where we're going to begin. And if you have it, I would encourage you to go ahead and turn there. I'm apologizing right now because I feel like every time I make a consonant sound, it's thudding. I don't know if that's fixable, but it's going to drive me crazy and really distract me. Thank you, Eli. <laughs> okay, so Gideon is one of the 12 judges that we read about in the Old Testament. So in the time before there were kings in Israel, God raised up these people called judges who were, their purpose was to lead for a time to help uh, bring Israel out of some kind of sticky situation, to protect them, to give guidance to them. So after Deborah had her place in the line of judges, this is where we find Gideon, uh, we discover that once again, the Israelites had done evil in the eyes of the Lord. So Judges 6 starts out by telling us that God as a result of Israel's evil, gave is the Israelites over to the hands of the Midianites. So the, the Israelites are in this, the middle of this Midianite oppression. For seven years, the Midianites are just like 
major bullies. They come in and they destroy crops and they kill livestock and they're just really being kind of nasty. They're not necessarily like enslaving the Israelites. They're just bullying them and they're making it so that they can't flourish and they can't grow and they can't do what they need to do. So the Israelites are hiding in caves and strongholds and they're just trying to get by for seven years, trying to get by day by day. Um, When we meet Gideon, he is threshing wheat. And I don't know how many of you have ever heard someone talk about what it means to thresh wheat. Or maybe here in Kansas, you have experience with threshing wheat, so you might know what that means or looks like. But typically, when you're going to thresh wheat, the the idea is that you need to get the husk off of the grain, off the kernel. And to do that, you have to beat the wheat with some kind of implement. And so typically, they would do this on like a a big flat rock or a, a... threshing table that they had made out of maybe wood or whatever they had available. And so uh, when we meet Gideon, he's threshing wheat, but he's not actually doing it on a big stone rock. The reason why they do it there is because um, as you're beating the wheat, the wind would come and blow through. If you're out in an open plain or up on a plateau or someplace like that, the wind would blow through and it would take away the husks. It would take away the chaff and it would leave the grain behind. And so typically doing it in an open place like that is ideal. Gideon is not doing that. He is in a wine press. And I looked up and Googled some ancient wine presses, and basically what it looks like is they, they chisel out a big hole in a rock somewhere, and they might have had some more that were most like more sophisticated than that, but typically they're probably just a big hole in the ground. And it always makes me think of um, I Love Lucy. Yes. Does anybody ever see that episode of I Love Lucy when they're in Rome? And she gets tricked into stomping around in the grapes. Well, Lucy was in a big wooden vat. Gideon was not in a vat, but it always makes me think of that. I don't know why. Um, He was in the ground hiding from the Midianites while he was trying to protect his crop and and do what he needed to do for his family. So the wine press is a great place for hiding. It's not a great place for threshing wheat. But this is where we find Gideon. So we're going to read... Starting uh, Gideon chapter, or sorry, Judges chapter six, starting with verse eleven. If you have your Bibles, we'll begin there. It says the angel of the Lord came and sat down under the oak in Ophrah that belonged to Joash the Abizrite, where his son Gideon was threshing wheat in a winepress to keep it from the Midianites. When the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon, he said, "The Lord is with you, mighty warrior." "Pardon me, my lord," Gideon replied. "But if the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us?" Why are all his wonders that our ancestors told us about when they said, Did not the Lord bring us up out of Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and given us to the hand of Midian. The Lord said to him, The Lord turned to him and said, Go in the strength you have and save Israel out of Midian's hand. Am I not sending you? Pardon me, my Lord, Gideon replied, but how can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my family. The Lord answered, I will be with you, and you will strike down all the Midianites, leaving none alive. Gideon replied, If now I have found favor in your eyes, give me a sign that it is really you talking to me. Please do not go away until I come back and bring my offering and set it before you. And the Lord said, I will wait until you return. Gideon went inside, prepared a young goat, and from an ephah of flour he made bread without yeast. Putting the meat in the basket... And its broth in a pot, he brought them out and offered them to him under the oak. The angel of God said to him, Take the meat and the unleavened bread, place them on this rock, and pour out the broth. And Gideon did so. Then the angel of the Lord touched the meat and the unleavened bread with the tip of his staff and that was in his hand. Fire flared from the rock, consuming the meat and the bread. 
and the angel of the Lord disappeared. When Gideon realized it was the angel of the Lord, he exclaimed, Alas, sovereign Lord, I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. But the Lord said to him, Peace, do not be afraid, you are not going to die. This is the word of the Lord. So Gideon realizes what has happened, and he realizes that this is an angel of the Lord that has come to bring a word to him, um, calling him mighty warrior and giving him a, a task to come against the Midianites and to, to bring Israelite out of, Israelites out of that um, oppression. So at the call of the Lord, Gideon goes and he destroys the altars to Baal that are in the area, and he begins to do what God has asked him to do. And this part of the story is often called the calling or the commissioning of Gideon, and it barely scratches the surface of the story. But this is where I want to focus our attention today. See, Gideon is not what you and I would consider a great man. He is from a lowly clan and a lowly tribe, and in his own words, he is the least in his own family. And throughout the story, we come across all kinds of words that are used to describe Gideon, or different um, allusions to ways that we can think of Gideon. He's insecure, he's timid, he's fearful, he's hesitant, self-seeking, weak, doubting, disobedient, he's reluctant. He doesn't really want to do what God has asked him to do, because he knows that he's probably going to create some enemies on the way, and he knows it's going to be really hard. And ultimately, in the end, Gideon ends up... He does deliver the Israelites from the Midianites, but he also ends up then turning the Israelites back to idolatry, and they start worshiping this other idol that Gideon has made. And so a lot of people, I feel like, give Gideon a really hard time. He's not somebody that you would expect to be a leader for the Israelites. He's one of the most uncertain and insecure judges that Israel had. But I prefer to see in Gideon a picture of humanity. Aren't we all doubtful and uncertain at times? I think the most vital sign of Gideon's uncertainty in Judges is in verse 13 when he asks, But if the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? Where are his wonders that our ancestors told us about when they said, Did not the Lord bring us up out of Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us into the hand of Midian. Gideon asks this question, If the Lord is with us, then why has all of this happened to us? I have to wonder if maybe this is like the burning question on all of the Israelites' minds. If the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? He brought us to the promised land. We had all these good things coming for us, and then we just had oppression, and we've had failure, and we've had all these different issues. And if the Lord is really with us, if the Lord has really brought us where he wants us to be, then why has all of this happened to us? We've been oppressed now for seven years, and God seems absent. And I think if we're honest, we find ourselves asking these questions sometimes. If the Lord is with us, why did my child die before he even saw the light of day? If the Lord is with us, why did my loved one get cancer? If the Lord is with us, why are the bills piling up? If the Lord is with us, why am I always alone? If the Lord is with us, why are the people of God so hurtful? If the Lord is with us, why are there children that are starving and dying? If the Lord is with us, why can't I feel God's presence anymore? If the Lord is with us, why do we repeatedly hear stories of uh, mass shootings and violence towards innocent people as now we once again have to walk through this story of 20 people who have given their lives to gun violence? And these questions, they haunt me today. If the Lord is with us, why do we still experience such deep darkness in our personal lives, in our church, and in our world. And I don't know the answers. 
I'm not here to give you seven easy steps to get out of the darkness. I wish I was, because if it was that easy, then it, we wouldn't be in darkness, or we wouldn't experience those moments. But I think that there are some things that we can take from this passage. Um, there's this line that I came across while I was studying, and the question was just asked, how do we know that God is with us? How can we be sure that God is near and that God cares and that God is working on our behalf? And then the commentary goes on to say, we tend to equate the presence of God with prosperity, success, well-being, health, and good vibes. And on the flip side, we assume that um, when we are experiencing hard times, when things are going poorly, when we're not in the best situation that we could be, we assume that God must be absent. So when we walk through loss or despair or depression or fear, any dark emotion that we feel, we lead to this conclusion that God is no longer with us. For Gideon and the Israelites, there is a happy ending to the story. They end up being freed from the Midianite oppression. But I think that since it doesn't actually take us seven years to read this passage, we just really quickly read that the oppression has been going on for seven years. We really just brush over the fact that for seven whole years, they lived in darkness and oppression. And so one of the very first things that I want us to understand from this passage today is that walking in darkness is not a unique individual experience. It's a nearly universal human experience. We've all had moments where it's hard to see God's leading, where it's hard to see God's guidance, God's care, or even God's presence. And doubt is something that we all experience at some point in our lives. Seven years is a long time. We get really frustrated if we don't have something figured out in a week, or a month, or even a year. But for seven whole years, these people had to walk in darkness. And so the truth is that sometimes, when we're going through a dark place in our lives, it doesn't resolve quickly. It lingers and it oppresses and it holds on for way longer than we'd like it to. I want to suggest that maybe that's not such a bad thing. I'm wondering if we've come to see all these emotions that we have attributed to darkness as, uh, and dark moments as our enemy. So we spend our lives trying to keep the lights on. We're convinced that light is better than dark, and rather than walking patiently through the days, weeks, and months of darkness, we do everything we can to get back to the light. Now, I'm not talking about Jesus is the light. Yes, Jesus is the light, and there is salvation from our sin. I'm not talking about living in sin. I'm talking about those moments that even as Christians, we end up having to walk through these times where we just can't understand what God's doing. And even though we have given our lives to Jesus, or even though we know that there is light and goodness, we just can't see it. And maybe some of you haven't experienced that, and I am thankful if you haven't. But for those of you who have experienced this, this is a very difficult thing. And we tend to think that we can do more, or pray more, or volunteer more, read the Bible more, add a list of things that we can do more of, and it will bring us up out of the darkness. And I mean, I think that there's a valid reason why we prefer to be in the light. But darkness isn't all bad. In fact, our bodies, our physical bodies, need physical darkness. Darkness is the thing that tells our bodies that it's time to sleep. So as a child, I needed a nightlight to help me feel safe at night. But now as an adult, if there's any light shining near my face at all, I cannot go to sleep. And the reason for this is because my body actually needs darkness. My body needs that sunset, that time when I can just um, 
not have to be in the light. I can just rest and my body starts to produce these hormones that make me sleepy and, and help me to have that restorative slumber that I need. So just like physical darkness is vital to the rhythm of our bodies, I think there's good in the light of day, but there's also good in the dark of night. So what if just like that physical darkness is good for our physical bodies, the emotions that we've labeled as dark are good for our spiritual health as well? What if walking through doubt and fear and skepticism and anger are all a part of leading us into who God wants us to be? In her book, Learning to Walk in the Dark, Barbara Brown Taylor talks about how like, the busyness of daytime keeps us from thinking about all those things, that, um, those deep worries or fears of those things that we maybe should be thinking about. But during the day, we're busy and we get to move from one thing to the next and we're constantly having something else today. She says, by day, I am a servant of the urgent. Nothing important has a chance with me. And I think sometimes when we walk through joyful times and, and times when things are going really well, it's the same for us. We don't necessarily feel like we need God as much because we're, we're busy. We're bouncing from one thing to the next. We're happy. We're, everything's going well. But she continues by saying, once the lights are off and I'm lying in bed, I'm a captive audience. In the dark of night, all the things, the fears, the doubts, the worries, the sadness, they all creep up on us, on her, so that she can no longer avoid them. I resonate with this. My husband can attest to it. We can be sitting together all evening for hours after the kids go to bed, having a wonderful time. As soon as we lay down to go to sleep, I have a thousand things I need to talk about. I don't know why. It's just what happens. But I think maybe it's because in the darkness, when we lie awake at night and we grapple with those hard questions, um, and we can't maybe seem to get it, or, you know, an actual darkness where we can't seem to hear God's voice or get a grip on what God is trying to tell us, that those are the times when we most fully embrace the difficult lessons that God has for, for us. Excuse me. So perhaps it's within that seven-year oppression that the Israelites were being asked to walk through their sin, to remember what God had called them to, and to resolve to change their ways. Darkness is not the enemy. Darkness is a part of life that helps us to understand the light more fully. So I think that the second thing I want us to understand from the story of Gideon is that when we walk through dark and uncertain times, God is gracious to us. We will have darkness in our life, and we will go through times of doubt and fear, but God is always gracious. So in the story of Gideon, he's the type of person who's constantly asking God for signs. So first, he needed the food on the altar to be consumed before he realized that he was talking to an angel of the Lord. And then when he's about to go into battle with the Midianites, he lays out a fleece to test God to see if God is really with him. Even though God has already given him signs, God has already shown him and already given him the title Mighty Warrior and already told him all these wonderful things, Gideon still has to uh, put out a fleece to see if God is really with him. In chapter 6, Verse 36, it says, Gideon said to God, If you will save Israel by my hand as you have promised, look, I will place a wool fleece on the threshing floor. If there is dew only on the fleece and all the ground is dry, then I will know that you have saved Israel by my hand as you said. And that, what is, that is what happened. Gideon rose early the next day, squeezed the fleece, and wrung out the dew, a bowl full of water. Then, the third test, Gideon said to God, do not be angry with me. Let me just take one more request. Allow me one more test with the fleece, but this time make the fleece dry and let the ground be covered with dew. And that night, God did so. Only the fleece was dry. All the ground was covered with dew. So that's 
the fire on the table, then the first fleece and the second fleece, and then later on, Gideon sneaks down to the Midianite camp and overhears a dream because he still wasn't sure. So he had this urging to go and sneak down to the camp and listen to hear what they were saying, and he discovered that, yes, the Midianites were afraid of what the Israelites were about to do. So that's four different times that Gideon required a sign from God. And four different times, God graciously, faithfully, and generously gave Gideon the assurance that he needed. God's grace is limitless. And when we need assurance, God is more than willing to give it. One of the words that we use to describe this is sustaining grace. In the darkness, God offers us a grace that supports and encourages and empowers us. And we may feel like everything is bleak, but God is not afraid of the dark. God is able to see through our darkest moments. And Psalm 139.12 says, even the, darkness is not light to, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. Even in our darkness, God still sees as if it were the bright of day. When I was 27 years old, I had a life-changing experience. My oldest daughter, Maggie, had been born about two and a half years earlier via C-section. Um, and so now I was pregnant with my second child, Judah, and my doctor had encouraged me to go ahead and try for a vaginal delivery. So, sorry, I'm going to get that word out of the way. Vaginal delivery. Okay. <laughs> they call that a VBAC, a vaginal birth after cesarean section. And my doctor had really been encouraging me to have a VBAC. Um, but the problem was, when I went into labor, my doctor was out of town. There were two doctors in Hutchinson who would allow a VBAC, and both of them were out of town. And there were two doctors in Hutchinson who would not allow a VBAC, and both of them were in town. So the doctor that was on call was not really interested in allowing me to have a trial of labor. Uh, so he came into my hospital room, and he immediately started telling me all the terrible, terrible things that could happen. Um, you can die. Your baby could probably die. Um, if not, if you don't die, if you don't both die or one of you die, then um, you could have really serious complications and not be allowed to have, not able to have any more children. And the, the list just kept going on and on and on. All these different complications that were possible with the VBAC. But by some miracle, the doctor agreed to allow me to have a trial of labor. The next three hours were like the hardest hours of my life because every single time the doctor came in the room, he would shake his head, and he would say, I just don't think you're going to be able to do this. Yeah. I'm mad right now. And he would say, we need to make sure that you're aware that you might still have to have a C-section. And every single time he would leave the room, I would just cry and say, I can't do this. And every single time I said, I can't do this, the nurses would come by my side, and they would hold my hand, and they would say, don't listen to him. You've got this. A wise pastor friend of mine recently told me, what if God is like a midwife, or in my case, a nurse, and he's standing beside us as we struggle through life's difficulties, as we struggle through labor or depression or whatever it is that we're struggling with, and God is saying to us, you've got this. You're doing great. Don't give up. What if God is our greatest cheering section? He's not removing us from darkness, not stopping the Midianite oppression per se, but he's whispering, encouraging, challenging, and persevering alongside of us saying, you've got this, Mama. What if God is walking with you today? You've got this, Annie. 
You've got this, Chris. You've got this, Karen. You've got this, Amber. You've got this, Sue. You've got this, Brianna. You've got this, church. And so while we're walking through this darkness, it's not that God's going to just take the darkness, take the difficult times, whatever trial it is that you're facing. God's not just taking it away, but he's walking with us. You've got this, church. So the third thing, God may not remove the darkness from us, but God walks with us. And he gives us a new name as we're walking this difficult path. One of the things I love most about Gideon's story is that in the midst of all this darkness and oppression, and in the midst of Gideon's ineptness, God still looks at Gideon and calls him Mighty Warrior. If I were a graphic designer, is anybody a graphic designer that could do some really awesome things? No. I would love to have like a clip with all these words that Gideon has put on him, or that we have put on ourselves, that the world has put on us across the bottom. And then the voice of the Lord comes in and this mighty warrior just smashes them all to bits. Like that's what I imagine when I think about the words that God puts on us. God has called Gideon mighty warrior and that title trumps all the others. And I believe that in the midst of our darkness, in the midst of whatever Midianite oppression looks like for you today, God speaks mighty warrior over you. And over I. And he smashes all of those things to bits. We're capable because God calls us. And I see this theme over and over and over in scripture. One of the first sermons I ever preached was on Rahab. And the overarching theme that I kept coming back to is that whatever whatever words the world puts on you are meaningless. Only God has the power to name you. Gideon didn't immediately live into that name that God gave him. It took practice and trial and error, and it will take practice and trial and error for us as well. What words have been used to describe you? Inept, slow, weak, arrogant? You know the words that you feel like people have put on you or you feel like you think about yourself. But God wants to replace those words with words of hope today. You are gifted You are capable, you are loved, you are strong and courageous. You are a mighty warrior. I'm struggling a little bit with this message because I don't want to put a nice, tidy bow on this. I don't want to say Jesus is the answer, even though Jesus is the answer. And if you just trust Jesus more, you'll be able to come out of darkness or you'll be able to overcome that trial. But I do want us to know that even if the trial lasts forever, in Christ we have hope for a future someday with no darkness. So Gideon gathers gathers these 32,000 men and prepares to go to battle against the Midianites. And so that God will receive the glory rather than Gideon, God whittles the army down to just 300 men. And so 300 men from 32,000, 300 men go up against the army. And they go in at night, and they, they split up into groups of three. So the Midianites are, like, camped down in a valley, and they kind of surround them on all sides. And, and they go in, and they split up, and they go around, and they take with them a, a jar that has a torch inside, and they take with them a trumpet. And at the sign of Gideon, whenever Gideon, whatever his sign was, that it was time, they smash the jars, and so these torches light up and surrounding the camp. And then they blow the trumpet. So if you're ever in a valley and you blow a trumpet, what happens? It goes for a long way. And if there's, 
if, I don't know for sure if there was, but if there's like rocks on the other sides, what's going to happen? It's going to echo. So they do this, and what happens is the Midianites are thrown into complete confusion. They have no idea. It's the middle of the night. They're sleeping. They have no idea what's going on. They just hear this loud blast that's echoing, that's filling the canyon, and so they start killing each other. The Israelites didn't actually end up having to really do anything because the Midianites just started killing each other. So with just 300 men, Gideon manages to defeat the entire army. It's really a story of military genius. God gives them victory and restores them to their independence using a weakling of a man and a very small army. But here's the thing. Darkness is difficult, and it doesn't always resolve easily. And we may spend our entire lives dealing with some kind of oppression. And sometimes life is just hard, and that's okay. But we do have hope in Jesus Christ, who has defeated death and the grave. And someday, when all is said and done, there will not be any more darkness. There will be no evil in the world, and there will be no more mass shootings, no more violence or hatred or fear or depression. Jesus has the final say on darkness. So even if we are walking down the long, long road of whatever it is, we can still hope in Jesus Christ. And even if we can't see the light at the end of the tunnel now, we know that Jesus is there somewhere and we can trust. So what things are oppressing you today? What things are surrounding you in darkness or causing you to doubt? Or if you're not feeling like you're in a place of deep darkness, what trials are you facing that you're not sure you can overcome? I'll be honest, the last several months have been super hard for me. Um, Chris and I, we believe in equal partnership in marriage. So we share all the tasks and roles, and we work hard to share all the responsibilities in our house. And Chris does everything he can to empower me to do what God has called me to do. But because of the way our lives are right now, I've spent the entire summer dragging kids around with me and trying to get a thousand things done. And so I've lived with this constant worry as I've had deadlines and I've had tasks and I've had household chores and I've had children fighting and I've had other family stresses and and we're looking for, we're trying to figure out our jobs for the fall and and just different work issues and I'm worried about our finances and um, Chris and I have been asked to do some really exciting things this fall but I'm worried about who's going to watch our kids and how are we going to prepare for this because right now life is just total chaos and I worry for our church. I want us to be the church that smashes the statistics. I don't want to be the church where the average attender comes one out of four Sundays. I want to be a church that's thriving and growing, and and not just growing, but people who are deeply committed to Christ. And so I worry about that, and more days than not, I think there is no way I can accomplish all of these things. There is no way that I can continue to go at the pace that I've been going at. And the things that are piling up on me are not bad things, but I I carry the weight of them on my shoulders. So my Midianites today are the fears and tensions that I feel between the things God asked me to do and the things that my family needs for me. I feel like Gideon, and some days I think it would be better if I could just, if I would just give up. Maybe I should just not do anything, then it would be a lot easier. But the good news today is that God has not asked me to pull myself up out of the darkness, and God has not asked me to walk this road alone. He's right beside me, and he's saying, you've got this, Mom. You've got this, church. You've got this, friends. And God has given me a new name. God calls me Mighty Warrior when I don't feel it myself, when I can't live into that on my own strength. And most importantly, God has the final say over darkness. So when I want to be consumed by the gun violence and the things that, the political, just, and all the things, 
when I want to be consumed by that, I can remember that God has the final say over darkness. So whatever weight you are carrying, the same is true for you. God is not asking you to pull yourself up out of the darkness. God is not asking you to walk this road alone. And God has given you a new name. You are a mighty warrior. You will have victory one day, whether it's tomorrow, in seven years, or when you finally see Jesus face to face. Jesus wins. So we talked about that sustaining grace a little bit. It's that grace that, that kind of carries us through and that, that gives us what we need in the dark times. And I believe that God's grace works in our lives as we grow in relationship with Jesus. That as we seek after God's will and as we learn what it means to trust God more fully, God's grace sustains us. It sanctifies us. It leads us deeper into relationship with God than we've ever been before. So if we learn anything from Gideon's story today... It's that God's sustaining grace is enough. It's enough for every doubt, every fear, every worry, every single moment. And we could give some Sunday school answers. We experience that grace through meeting together. It's vital that we show up and that we be a part of this family, that we be a part of the body of Christ, because we cannot walk as Christ followers in isolation. We need each other. And we experience God's sustaining grace through prayer and studying of the word, and one of my favorite ways that we experience God's sustaining grace is by receiving the elements of communion. This is part of why we do participate in communion every week at the dwelling. It's because it's vital to our well-being. It's a, a means by which God's grace is able to be given to us that we can receive and embrace and experience God's grace. So if you're walking in darkness today, I think one of the best things you can do is take a step toward God. Coming forward to receive communion is a way of saying that your physical body will trust God in times of darkness, even if you still can't see the light at the end of the tunnel. And if you're walking in a time of rejoicing today, receiving God's grace by taking communion with your sisters and brothers is another way of saying that I'm going to walk with you. I will carry you and support you even when I can't understand your darkness. This is a safe place, and we don't have to pretend that everything is going well if it's not. And knowing that each of us has trials of our own, we join together to receive the gift of the Lord's grace today. Through this meal, this bread and juice, we hold on to the hope that Jesus Christ has conquered death and darkness. And someday we, too, will conquer death and darkness. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are so thankful for your grace that carries us. We are thankful for the moments um, in which things are good and joyful and we, and we sense your presence. But Lord, today we also want to express that we are thankful when things are hard. We are thankful that you allow us to experience times of trial, times of difficulty. And Lord, we ask today that you would um, use those times in our life to, to build us up, to draw us closer to you, to help us to understand your kingdom and your grace more fully. Thank you so much for this time that we can be together. We love you, Lord. I'm going to ask Robert to come. And we're going to prepare to receive communion. And I just want to say, knowing how much we need each other, and how much we need the physical elements as conduits of God's grace, Jesus gives us this example. The Lord Jesus, on the night when she was betrayed, he took the bread, he gave thanks, he broke the bread, he gave it to his disciples and said, This is my body, which was given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. 
And likewise, when supper was over, he took the cup, he gave thanks, gave it to his disciples and said, Drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this in remembrance of me. So as Robert plays, 